There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Since we have so many verses to cover this morning, I'm not going to have you stand and read them all. I promise I won't cheat you. I'll read all of them. Let's do pray one more time. So thankful to be part of your family, Lord, in this crazy world that we live in. It is so good to be part of the family of God. If there's anyone in here today, Lord, that is not in your family, I pray that they would leave today part of that family. So take your word this morning, Lord, and let it do that work that only it can do. That's to penetrate a human heart and to change a life. Ask in Christ's name, amen. As fallen humans, our natural rebellion against God makes it hard for us to learn lessons the easy way. Reminded of the joke about the farmer who bragged about his extremely obedient mule, his skeptical neighbor insisted on a demonstration. So the farmer hitches the mule to a wagon, then without warning, he picks up a two-by-four and smashes it against the animal's head. The neighbor is horrified. Why did you do that? He said, I thought your mule was a model of obedience. It is, the farmer replied, but first you have to get his attention. You know, in a similar vein, God knows we often don't learn things or grow unless he likewise gets our attention. And one of the main ways God uses to get our attention is by allowing us to go through trials, and tribulations. We're going to see it in the life of David, and we're also, from time to time, going to see it in our individual lives also. Look at verse 13 with me, please. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him a captain over a thousand, and he went out and came in before his people. And the Lord behaved, and David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. We learn from verse 15 that Saul was now afraid of David because he knew that God was with David. And we all know that the Lord at this time had already departed from Saul. And why did the Lord depart from Saul? Because Saul refused to repent and didn't want the Lord in his life. And when that happens in a human life, do you know what happens next? You'll find such a person to be very bitter, very angry, and uninterested in any type of spiritual activity whatsoever. They are uninterested in reading the Bible. 
They refuse to pray. And they don't want to come to church. And the last thing they want to do is have spiritual people surrounding them. Now, why is that? Because it convicts them of their own relationship that they once had with God. It reminds them of what they once had and have now lost. That's why Saul says, get David out of my presence. There is a reason for that. When we are away from the Lord, we want to be alone. We don't want to be around other believers. It's like turning on a bright light in the face of someone who has grown accustomed to the dark. It's just too painful. Look at verse 17 with me. Then Saul said to David, Here's my older daughter, Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my life, or my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, as a wife. Now, if you recall from a few weeks ago in chapter 17, Saul had promised to give his daughter in marriage to the man who had killed Goliath, but this promise had not been fulfilled. The fact that David had killed Goliath wasn't enough for Saul. He now expected David to fight the battles of the Lord in order to gain his wife, Saul's eldest daughter, Merab. We see that Saul was not a man of honor, nor was he a man of his word. The hand of his elder daughter may have been offered as an incentive for David to take on the dangerous military responsibilities as commander of a thousand. What is made clear to us is that Saul's intentions were entirely malevolent. Saul says in verse 17, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Since David was an excellent soldier and a born leader, the logical thing to do was to give him assignments that would take him away from the camp where the enemy could kill him. So Saul is thinking, I know what I'll do. I'll send David out into the heat of battle, and then when he is killed, no one can blame me. Do you know what is incredibly ironic and sad about that? In just a few years, David is going to think the exact same thing and do the exact same thing. When he sends out Uriah the Hittite into the heat of battle in an attempt to cover up his affair with Bathsheba. But Saul's plan didn't work because David kept winning all the battles. After all, the Lord was with him and the power of God was on him. Instead of eliminating David or diminishing his popularity, Saul's scheme only made him a greater hero to the people, and this increased Saul's fear of David all the more. 
Saul's fear of David has twisted him to the point that he is now hoping for a Philistine victory. Saul had started off so well. How could he have possibly gotten to this point? Last week, the check engine light on my Nissan began to blink. Have you ever noticed that whenever a light starts blinking on your car, it's never good news? There's never a light that comes on and says, you look great, or have a fabulous day. No, it's always warning us of some type of problem. So anyway, now that the light is on, I really have essentially three choices. I can pay attention to the light and take it to the dealer, which I did, $500, by the way, or I could find the wire to the warning light and cut it to permanently extinguish the light, which in hindsight would have been a lot cheaper, or I could just simply ignore the light. That's kind of what Saul is doing right now. Surely God has warned him again and again, and yet Saul has decided to just ignore all of the warning lights. Saul's destruction began when he became volatile, vindictive, and vicious towards David. He decided that one of them had to go. The initial love that Saul had for David was replaced by murderous hate, and then it erupted into uncontrollable rage and violence. How dare somebody steal my limelight? How dare the supporting actor steal the show and garner all the reviews? David's ratings were up, his star was rising, and his fans were growing. Someone had to pay, and something had to give, and something had to be done. One commentator I read said, If Saul had been a good man, he would have been horrified at this appearance of evil in his heart. He should have said, Get thee behind me, Satan. He should have striven to the utmost to strangle it in the womb. What untold mountains of guilt and pain this would have saved Saul. If he would have developed a resistance to and stamping out of this evil passion, when it betrayed its presence in his heart. But instead of stamping it out, Saul nourished it. Instead of extinguishing the spark, he heaped fuel upon the flame. And his jealousy, having been allowed to conceive, was not long of bringing forth its thorns and its thistles. Here's the thing. The symbol of Saul throughout his life will be his spear. And the frightening thing is, the spear is his symbol of power and of his authority. And how does he eventually die? By falling on his own spear. The tragedy of that teaches us that if you live on the basis of your power and not purity, one day you will find out that if you live by the spear, 
you will also die by the spear. Now we see the humility of David in verse 18. He responds, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? Now we have heard words very similar to these before. In 1 Samuel 9.21, it says, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans from the tribe of Benjamin? Who said those very unpretentious words? That was Saul, protesting at the strange things he was hearing about himself from Samuel about him becoming the next king. So as David spoke equally self-effacing words that he, this was the chosen king, Lord's chosen king, addressing the rejected king. But back to David's humility. In those days, the groom was required to give a dowry. In eastern countries, the bridegroom was required to pay the father of the engaged a stipulated portion. In money or valuables, proportioned to the rank and station of the family to which, he was, to which she belonged. It was sort of like alimony in advance, in case things didn't work out and the daughter ended up back home. Now, we know that David was a poor shepherd boy. So how could he ever put together the bride price for a king's daughter? We will soon find out. Then in verse 19, Saul gives the promised daughter to David to another man. Now we are given no explanation for this. I think it's just more proof that Saul is now spinning completely out of control. Look at verse 20. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly, and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servant spoke those words in the hearing of David. And David said, Does this seem to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law, seeing I am poor and lightly esteemed? And the servants of of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Michael fell in love with David as a young girl. After all, David was a national hero and one who had defeated the great Philistine giant Goliath. It's easy to see how the heart of a young girl would be captured by this dashing military man. And while we're not given all the details, it would seem that Michael, in some ways, is a handful to deal with. Because when Saul finds out that she loves David, he is elated with the news. And look what he says. I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Let me ask you ladies, how would that make you feel if if your father said that concerning the man that you loved? Saul's like, let's see, how can I really 
mess this guy's life up. I know. I'll let him marry my daughter. That will surely ruin his life. Thanks, Dad. Can you think of anything more corrupt than a dad using his daughters as leverage for political gain? This guy is a grade-A slime ball at this point. El Crepus Maximus is the Hebrew. Not really. But really, we should expect nothing else. Because when sin comes into a life, it both permeates and then it progresses. You start with hurt feelings. It progresses to a grudge, which then turns into hostilities. And quickly it has you thinking in ways you have never thought you would have ever thought before. The word used there for snare in verse 21 is literally the word bait. What on the surface would seem wonderful, the love of a young girl, was actually a trap in the waiting. But here's the thing we need to remember. Nothing has changed to this very day. The enemy still tries to entice and entrap those who are seeking to serve the Lord. The hunter knows his game, and he will be very flexible with his snares. And Satan is the exact same way. One man he will attempt to take down with drunkenness. Another he will take down with partying. Another he will try to attempt to destroy with lust. And if he cannot get him with lust, he will try to lavish him to death with pride. If a person is sensitive, he will try to destroy them with depression or criticism of others. If a man enjoys the easy life, he will not try laziness because he knows that will not work. He will bait him into sitting still, folding his arms, and perishing in his own slothfulness. Likewise, in the placing of the snare, the hunter carefully places some of the food about the snare. Now, he does so in such a manner that the prey has no idea that the food laid there, seemingly for his own enjoyment, is actually there to entice him and to finally destroy him. George Orwell captures the idea of this in one of his essays, and he offers a graphic image of this type of thing. He writes, There was a wasp that was sucking jam on my plate, and so I took my knife and cut him in half. But the wasp paid no attention. He merely went on with his meal, while a tiny stream of jam trickled out of his severed esophagus. Only when he tried to fly away, did he grasp the dreadful thing that had happened to him? And destruction is often the end of what happens to us when we are trapped by our desires. Please remember that none of us are above this in the area of temptations. There is no one in here who is tempt-exempt. Our enemy is very devious, and he has a long and distinguished record of deceiving the people of God. And often what initially seems harmless and pleasant can have disastrous results. 
A good example is found in Acts chapter 27. The background to this is that Paul was a prisoner on a ship which had already encountered a lot of problems sailing in bad weather. So Paul warns them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo of the ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by the Apostle Paul. In other words, the centurion listened to the wisdom of the world instead of listening to the wisdom of God. Simply put, he was ignoring that blinking light on his dashboard. So the choice was made by these men to take the vessel out into the high seas and press on. What they didn't realize was that there was a huge storm that was not even on the horizon of their lives. But even now, it was gathering strength to eventually overtake them. Now, why would all these men ignore the Apostle Paul? The text tells us in verse 13 of that chapter, it says, When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euryclidon. I want us to focus on that phrase, the south wind blew softly. The problem was they felt the soft blowing of the south wind. And there is a snare of the soft blowing of the south wind that always creates problems. The snare of the south wind is it's always disarming to us. It woos us. It calls us. It encourages us. It pleads with us. But ultimately, it misleads us. The snare of the south wind also misled these men. They had the voice of inner conviction, but it was wrong. They had the seeming right circumstances of the soft south wind, and yet that was also wrong. They ignored the warning of the word spoken through an apostle, and that was wrong. And if you know the story, you know that Paul ended up being absolutely right. The ship was destroyed, and all those on board either swam or floated on planks of the busted ship in order to reach land. I would say to us this morning, beware of the seductive soft winds that try to seduce us. Verse 25, Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed two hundred men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and then gave them in full count to the king. 
that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as wife. Well, as we've learned, David is too poor to provide a dowry for the king's daughter. But Saul says, that is not a problem, Davy boy. Now, the next part gets a little gross. So all you ladies, don't look at me for a minute. Avert your eyes, as it were. Saul says, all I desire is you bring me 100 foreskins of the Philistines. Let me ask you something. Has someone ever asked you to do something and you are sure you could not have possibly have heard them correctly? This is how it has to be with David right now. Excuse me? Did I hear you right? You want me to bring you what? Now, what Saul would do with this particular gift from David, I have no idea, and I don't want to know. But look at verse 27. Therefore David arose and went, and he and his men, they killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. David not only kills 100 Philistines, he kills 200 Philistines. Sort of a, I'll see your hundred and raise your hundred type of thing. Now, of course, you're going to have to kill these men to get this. I mean, these Philistines are not going to be eager and willing participants in all of this. Now, forgive me in advance for how my mind works. But it says that they gave them in full count to the king. That means someone had to sit down and count all of those things. Now, I don't know how bad your work situation is right now. <laughs> but as you can see, there are worse jobs in the world to be had. So I hope that just makes Monday morning a little better for you tomorrow. I'm just glad I'll be long dead before we ever get back to this part of the Bible. In fact, let's just move on to verse 28. <clears throat> Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David, so Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. The Hebrew word translated enemy is a, a participle of a verb that means to be hostile to or to hate. Saul had adopted the very opposite stance towards David from those who loved him, such as Jonathan, Michael, and all the people. The two points I want us to get from this come at the end of verses 29 and 30, and they are this. One, Saul became David's enemy continually, and two, David became highly esteemed. Now, we all like and want that second part of being esteemed, but here's the thing. The Lord will often use point one in order to get us 
to point to. And that's, can, and that's where we can struggle. At this time, David was about 20 years old. He would become king somewhere around the age of 30. And so there will be a 10-year time of testing. And those are words that I never want to hear together. 10 years and testing. I want to take Trials, Testing, and Tribulation 101 from a correspondence course. But unfortunately, life just doesn't work that way. I don't like it any more than you do. But very often in our spiritual life, the old adage is true. No pain, no gain. From the moment we are born until our final breath, Death, in some way, is going to be our companion. And although we would like to abandon it, still pain does have its benefits. Physically, for instance, pain signals unseen trouble. And it helps caring mothers and physicians to be able to detect where the problem is. And personally, like Christ, we learn obedience from the things that we suffer. Spiritually, the pain of adversity helps us to grow into mature people of faith. Philip Yancey, in his insightful work, Where is God When It Hurts?, writes, I've never read a poem extolling the virtues of pain, nor seen a statue erected in its honor, nor heard a hymn dedicated to it. Pain is usually defined as unpleasantness. Christians don't really know how to interpret pain. If you pin them against the wall... In a dark, secret moment, many Christians would probably admit that pain was God's one mistake. He really should have worked a little harder and invented a better way of coping with the world's dangers. I am convinced, though, that pain gets a bad press. Yancey finishes with these words. Perhaps we should see statues, hymns, and poems of pain. Why do I think this? Because up close... Under a microscope, the pain network is seen in an entirely different light. It is perhaps the paragon of creative genius. However, I'm sure that you'll agree with me that emotional or mental pain is not quite so objective. C.S. Lewis adds this comment, Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain but it is more common and also more hard to bear. It is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. Sometimes, however, it persists, and the effect is devastating. I love that quote. In other words, it's hard enough to go to the dentist when I have a bad tooth, but where do I go when I have a broken heart? I suggest to you this morning the answer is not all that difficult. We go to Christ, the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief and who alone can understand our brokenness and our pain. This is James 1-2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Now those are easy words to read, 
but a whole lot harder to live out. Let me close with this. Remember in the book of Judges when Gideon was at the threshing floor hiding from the Midianites and the angel of the Lord showed up and said to Gideon, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now listen to Gideon's response. If the Lord is with us, then why has all this trouble came upon us? And where are all the miracles of the past that we've been told about all these years? If, why, and where? The question may be phrased differently, but at its source, it's all the same. If God is for me, then why is this happening? And where is God anyway? Maybe you felt like Gideon in the past. Maybe you feel like Gideon this morning. With Gideon you cry. If God has chosen me, and if God is with me, I have two questions. Why is everything crashing all around me? And where are all the miracles I read about in the Bible and hear about in the life of others? Now, Gideon is hiding and trying to avoid conflict. And he's trying to place blame for everything that is happening upon God. Now, Jewish theology taught that God lived among his people. But Gideon's people at this point have begun to look at their circumstances instead of their theology. And any time you begin to look at your theology through your circumstances, you'll soon find your theology shifting. Gideon needed to be reminded that whatever the circumstances, that God was with him. And you may be in very difficult circumstances this morning, but you must see your circumstances in the light of your theology and the love of God, and not vice versa. For it is only then that we can truly be able to mature and grow into the people that God wants us to be. And Father... That is our desire. And, Lord, where that may not be anyone's desire, make it their desire, I pray, Father. For I know one thing. Your ways are always the best ways. You know what a human life needs, Lord, for you created us. And you know how that we should behave. And you know the lifestyle that will bring us the most joy and fulfillment. Do that in our hearts, I pray, this morning. Christ's name, amen.